Turn to Daniel uh, chapter 1. These are the words of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of, of the food that the king ate and of the wine that the king drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were, a better, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word. So I have, um, I've spent uh, quite a bit of time in countries and in cultures that are very foreign uh, to this one, to the one that I'm used to. And one of the first things that I'm aware of is how much of an alien I look like uh, to them. I'm large and I'm light-skinned. In fact, if you can imagine, there was an era when I shaved my head and I didn't have any facial hair either. It's very different. Um, but most of these places I've been to, they are much smaller, the skin is much darker, and I stick out. But I also know very little of their culture and almost zero of their language. And so to be in that place, not only do I look like an alien, but I feel like an alien in every way. And these are some difficult realities. And what it means is that I have to be thoughtful and I have to be careful about the way I carry myself and, and, I, and the way I speak, but they're clear and they're understood. Everyone knows why that's the case. Uh, India is one of them. I've been there three times. I've sat in homes and in worship gatherings. I've preached and I've walked the streets with other Christians. And it feels like there's, 
this neon blinking sign over my head that says, I'm not from here. In Myanmar, or formerly Burma, uh, they picked me up uh, and put me on the back of a motorcycle and they drove me a couple blocks. Then they got off their bike and they told me I had to ride the bike by myself because I was adding too much weight to their poor little bikes. And so a friend took a picture of me while I was riding my bike back to our hotel by myself and I looked like a cartoon with my knees like almost dragging in the dirt on the street. And so it's no wonder that Everywhere I went, people were just locked eyes staring at me like I was some sort of giant in their midst. I must have looked like a real, a real alien. But I always leave these places, and I'm always excited to return and enjoy the comfort of being back home with people that I share uh, a language with and I share an understanding of the world with. But then I receive reports from some of those same pastors, some of the pastors in India, where they're reporting that the local governments now, this is just in the last year or two, Local governments have passed laws banning private baptisms. Instead, while baptisms are allowed, they have to be registered with the government and an official has to be in attendance, which of course they refuse to do because they understand that this is essentially only a way for the government to identify who it is that they're going to harass and they'll hire thugs or they'll drag them off to prison for indeterminate amounts of time. And so while I'm glad to be home, I'm reminded that there's Christians all over the world that know far better than I do what it feels like to be an alien, an actual alien in their own country. We've enjoyed for a long time a rather safe space to believe and live just as we want to live and believe without any real fear of persecution or discomfort. In fact, quite the opposite. For many, especially in a historically conservative place like Boise, and certainly in the suburbs around Boise, being a Christian or at least living like one might even be popular. It might even earn you some advantages. But things are changing. They've been changing. Maybe they've been changing more drastically over the last 10 years or so. But we are having to come to grips with the fact that we are no longer the majority. That our views, our beliefs in God and about the world he created are no longer acceptable. And they certainly shouldn't be spoken out loud. Tim Keller said that we are entering a time when it's, there's no longer a social benefit to being a Christian which there has historically been. Instead, it might actually cost you to claim to be a Christian, to believe in eternity, to believe in a creator, to take the teachings of Jesus seriously, to live by a biblical sexual ethic, or just to not cheat on your taxes, is increasingly making Christians, at least those who will not bend on things like that and others, look like a 6'2 white guy riding a small motorcycle through a village with his knees dragging on the ground. That is what it's gonna feel like more and more as we begin to claim the things that we should be claiming. So the question is, how should we live in a society or a world that doesn't like what we believe, that doesn't like what we say, doesn't like how we live? This is ultimately where the book of Daniel is gonna be helpful and it's gonna be relevant. But I wanna be clear, it's not because Daniel is gonna give us a precise strategy for every issue. It's not gonna answer all of our questions. It's not gonna prescribe a route for us through the civic duties of, of living in America. And it's not ultimately going to call us to live like Daniel. Now, sure, it's good to learn from Daniel and from the way in which he approaches these things. But it's it's not about living like Daniel. It's going to be about believing in Daniel's God. Alistair Begg says, We will ultimately be able to navigate our present moment to the extent that we realize that the God of the exiles and of Daniel in the 6th century BC has not changed in the two and a half millennia since that time. We serve and can trust in the same God that Daniel did. Romans 12, 2, Paul encourages us 
uh, not to be conformed to this age, but he says, be renewed by the tran- uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good and pleasing and the perfect will of God. Knowing God and doing what is right and pleasing to God, it doesn't start with a proper game plan and a proper strategy. It begins with what you believe in your mind, what you know to be true, and ultimately what you know to be true about God. So Daniel's not going to prescribe for us a Christian game plan for this election season. When our beliefs and our convictions are ultimately going to be put on the chopping block, Daniel's going to present God to us, whom we can trust in, and who, as Psalm 23 so beautifully paints for us, who will lead us and is with us in and through the valleys of the shadows of death. He doesn't steal us away. He walks with us through those valleys and who ultimately prepares rest and a feast for us in the presence of our enemies. So here in Daniel chapter one, uh, we've got three short sections uh, that will hopefully, in in a sense, renew our minds in, in three ways, okay? One, which we've kind of already started to mention, is just the reminder uh, that Daniel was not home, was not home. Two, that ultimately Daniel knew his lines. And what I mean by that is that Daniel knew the lines he would not cross. Maybe it's even better to say Daniel knew the lines that had been drawn for him that he would not cross, okay? And three, ultimately, this is building towards the reminder that, that God is still on his throne. Despite what we see and feel and experience in this life, God is still on his throne. So the first part here, I'm just going to read them again. Verses 1 to 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, the youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that the king drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So Daniel and his friends, these four youths, are going to be some of the primary characters throughout this book, at least the first six chapters. And they, um, likely because of just the, the, the use that they were after here, are probably teenagers, maybe somewhere between 15 and 20 years old, which means, um, because when we know exile happened and when they were taken off to Babylon, it means that they have been raised in the promised land. They have lived their whole life in in Judah, the land that was promised to them by God. This isn't just a nice place that they've happened to build for themselves. This is the fulfillment of God's promises to them. This is not like your starter home that you bought when you were first married. And it's not like the forever home that you've always dreamed of. It's the forever home that has been established for you by God himself as he promised to your family, to you and to your family for generations. All of Israel's stories and all of their traditions and everything that they believed in and trusted and hoped in, all their moments of disobedience, the punishments that they received, ultimately circled around this one promise that they were promised a place, a land that they were to live, that they would dwell with God. And they were in that place. They were in that place. And then Babylon comes and drags them away 
And I want you just to think about how disorienting that would be. It's not just a disruption in your life. It's not just a, a blip in your plans. It is, it is literally causing a, a crisis, unlike any crisis that Israel has ever experienced since maybe Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. Because not only does Babylon capture Israel's people, but then they steal some of the sacred items of the temple, they, the institutions of their faith, and they desecrate them, and they put them in their own treasury and claim them for their own God and in service of their own God. This is, this is what Babylon does. And we should note, when I say Babylon, it's important that this is very specific historically to this moment, but also throughout scripture, Babylon is presented as a kind of prototype for the world's evil empires and evil systems. So although right now Babylon doesn't exist today, there's no borders of Babylon, so to speak, Revelation still speaks of the ultimate destruction of Babylon. This is what is culminating. The rise of evil is, is identified as Babylon. And so when we think of Babylon, we can think of it contextually here, but we can also understand the way in which evil systems and evil corrupt empires grow and, and spread and, and their tactics and all the things that they do to, to gain and enslave people, we can, we can start to see similarities, okay? This is what Babylon does. Babylon takes what belongs to God, including his people and, and their objects of faith, and he claims them for itself. Babylon desecrates what is holy and is intended for God. So, think about today. We are told that our highest responsibility is to the common good of all people, which, which sounds nice, and we don't necessarily disagree with that on its face. But of course, Babylon gets to decide what is the common good. Babylon gets to define what good means. It's no wonder that the world, in all of its rage against God, must ultimately stand on God's things to argue against him. Don't you think it's ironic that we have to be taught by godless people about the place and purpose of things like marriage, or the nature of love, or the need for justice. These things belong to God. They belong to God, and they are for him. And they were given to us in order to know him. And what Babylon does is that it takes what is God's, including taking God's own people, and it puts those things in service of its own godless empire. Then we read that the king asks specifically for the young people, specifically for the young people, the most valuable resource of any people or any family. He wants their best, their best young people, and the king wants them to learn the language and the literature of Babylon. This wasn't just a new style of writing. This wasn't just a new grammar. This, wasn't, um, this was ultimately an entirely alien thought world. This was something completely opposite of what Israel knew and believed and how they learned. It was built on ancient polytheism and animism. These young men would not just learn different evolutionary theories, they would be taught, as all were back then, how to think and be a Babylonian. Then we read that the king would provide their food. And this will prove to be a problem later, we'll talk about it in a second, but it's presented ultimately as an honor. It was an honor uh, that immediately gained them a kind of status and privilege available to no one else. They got to eat the food right off the king's own table. They had to deal with not only that they were rejecting food, but they were going to be rejecting ultimately the, the honor and the privileged status that it was going to gain them by that offer. Okay? Then, then we read that they were given new names. So these four young men forfeited names ultimately that honored Yahweh in exchange for names that incorporated references to Babylonian gods. 
Daniel's new name was Belteshazzar, which likely was a request for the wife of the god of Marduk to protect the king. It's essentially what his name meant. So in the context of these stories, I think it's easily, easy to see that this is really the greatest crisis in the history of God's people. They had been in the promised land, and now by all appearances, it would seem that the gods of Babylon were stronger than the God of Israel. The inevitable question must be, where is God? Or maybe they forgot their own perpetual disobedience. They might be asking, do we, we follow God for nothing? Is he not going to show up? Has he been defeated? Alistair Begg, I think he does a good job of imagining what they would be wrestling with and connecting it to how we might feel even in our own context today. Alistair Begg says, he says this, imagining the parents of Israel's youth wondering, we didn't raise our children in the faith in order for them to be carried away like this. Our kids need to live in Judah, not in Babylon. What will become of them there? If God is good, why is he causing our children to have to grow up in this kind of place? And similarly, aren't we asking the same thing? What is God doing? Why are we having to live in and why are our kids having to grow up in this kind of place, in this kind of society? If God is good, why would he let our land, our country, our education system look like this? Now, I want to be clear that what we are experiencing in Western culture is not exactly the same as what Israel experienced in Babylon. We certainly enjoy freedoms that Israel could never have imagined. But I just want to highlight that there are similarities in the way that Babylon works, seeking ultimately to enslave God's people, whether physically or spiritually, and to use what is God's ultimately for its own purposes. And so in that sense, the fears are the same. The fears are the same. In the book of Daniel, at least the first half of Daniel, and the second half of Daniel too, we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, tells a story of how God's people respond and what the heart of God's people ultimately respond in the midst of an empire that was built on denying and defying God. The story is told through these, uh, the particular experiences of these four young men. And really it's about being brave, having courage, what that courage looks like in a world that is looking more and more like Babylon and less and less like Jerusalem. So the second thing, second section here, uh, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see that you were in worse condition than the, other, than the use of your own age so, that, uh, sorry, so you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days, and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So Daniel, Daniel knew what lines were drawn for him and which lines he would not cross. Now, I find it fascinating, if not a little bit challenging, to consider how bleak this situation is that we've kind of already painted, how bleak this situation is, and everything that was being forced on these young men and where Daniel's line ultimately was. In one sense, you could say that Babylon is after the whole person. 
He wants to enslave the whole person. He wants their home, their education, their status, their identity, and ultimately their service. They were relocated, they were re-educated, they were honored, renamed and given high-profile jobs. And really, nowhere in the text is it suggested that they rejected what was being foisted on them or that they even protested. Instead, the Babylonians kind of liked them. God gave them favor with those that were over them. And even when they do finally draw the line and they say no, the, the way in which they do so is so, can I say, gentle and like reasonable and minimally confrontational as possible. They couldn't prevent the relocation. They couldn't resist their new education. They couldn't refuse their new names, but they wouldn't eat the king's food. That's where they drew the line. This is the point I think that's made me kind of wonder the most as I've been reading this. Of all that was expected of them, what was it about this one thing that made Daniel say no? He obviously knew where his line was. And, and I think it's this. In the Old Testament, one of the distinguishing features of God's people was their dietary rules, the things that they, that they followed, the rules that they followed about what they would eat. It, it ultimately marked them out as God's people. And it testified to uh, what they believed it meant to truly belong to God. But it was, it was kind of more than that as well, too. It was a recognition that what God had deemed unclean, what God had described as unclean and unfit, was not something that they would consume. It was a matter of not bringing defilement and uncleanness into the very fibers of their body and their being. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in this because I, I want to know why it is that it is so distinctly different than bringing the ideas of Babylon into your mind, allowing yourself to be educated in their literature and their culture and their language. Why allow Babylon to educate you and change your name and not just eat some of her bacon along the way, right? I think, I think, and I'm conjecturing a little bit, but I think it must mean that ultimately to absorb Babylon's language and literature doesn't mean having to affirm it and it doesn't mean having to embrace it. To receive Babylon's names doesn't mean to become them or to identify with them. Maybe none of it actually changes who you are as God's child. But God had drawn a very clear line for Israel at the mouth and said no unclean things would come into your mouth. And so no unclean things would become sustenance and nourishment. It wasn't just information. It was something that they would have to live on. It was the thing that would make them strong and, and give them energy throughout the day, and it would be their strength. And so no unclean thing would be that strength and that nourishment and that life to them. And of all the things that Daniel had little to no control over, he always had control over what would go in his mouth. He knew the line that God had drawn for him, and he decided to make his stand there. He would not live on what would defile his body. But I mentioned, um, too, that the way that he went about his protest is kind of, I think is kind of wonderful, okay? He's not a rabble rouser. He's not a nuisance about this, right? We could say, don't confuse being godly with being obnoxious. Don't confuse being godly with being a jerk. Instead, despite what must have been the simplest, yet most extreme temptation for him to go with, think about what was before him and, what, and how easy it would have been for him and these youths who have been taken from their home and they're all on their own in a foreign land. Think of how easy it would have been for them to say, you know, we're a long way from home. I don't even know where God is right now. The times they are a changing. Our parents have been a little too strict on this diet stuff anyways. All of our friends are doing it. Despite that temptation before them, they knew that they couldn't cross this line. They take 
I think what is a kind of a surprising approach. And I'm gonna call it, I'm gonna call it this. I'm gonna call it cooperation without confrontation or compromise. Their approach to this issue, this line that they can't cross, is cooperation without confrontation or compromise. Ultimately, they invite the chief official who's in charge of them into this problem. They do not accuse. They do not draw a line in such a way to suggest that the official or the king is on the evil side of things. Daniel ultimately just makes it personal and it's about him and his relationship with God and his desire to not be defiled before him. And so he asks the official for permission. He says, can I ask for permission not to defile himself? Which maybe I'm guessing a little bit, but would presumably require some kind of explanation of his belief in God and, and the line that had been drawn for him. I'm guessing here a little bit, but he doesn't say, you eat disgusting, unclean things and I refuse. Or your diet is wicked and I won't eat it. Instead, he asks for permission. I think that we can assume that Daniel would have ultimately not eaten the food regardless of what the outcome was, but he doesn't jump to refusal. He doesn't build the confrontation at the ground level. He invites the official in to consider how he might be able to maintain his conviction and ultimately still remain in this indoctrination program. However that conversation went, the official was kind to Daniel. This is one of the evidences, I think, that Daniel took a kind and, and, and invitational approach to this that the response immediately is that he had favor with this official and compassion from this official. He liked Daniel and his friends, ultimately, but the official says he liked his life more. He says, he says that basically to not give Daniel the food would endanger his life. And then notice what Daniel does, okay? He doesn't disregard the official's fear. He doesn't say, well, bummer for you. I've got my convic convictions and I don't care how uncomfortable or how dead it makes you. If I can go so far as to say that this is a wonderfully subtle way in which Daniel loved this official. Obviously, I don't know how Daniel felt about the man. I don't understand all the details of their interactions. But his, his, his interaction with him that we see was inviting and it wasn't condemning. Daniel took into consideration the official's own fears and maybe even validated those fears by accommodating them in, in a way. As much as he could, at least, he invited him to participate in the solution that would hopefully work out for both of them. So he says, let's test this. I think in a way it's Daniel's way of inviting him into experiencing God. Because Daniel is not just putting the food to the test. He's in a way, he's putting God to the test. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that he's putting God's promises to the test. He trusts in God who's still present and still cares and is over them. And he says, if, if that's true, then, then this will work out in some way. And he puts God's promises to the test. And he's inviting the official in to experience that with him. How much faith that must have taken, especially considering how little of God's blessing they were experiencing in the moment. But he says, we're going to do what's right and we're going to trust God to pull through for us. So he asked the official to give them veggies for 10 days and see if they look healthier than the other young men who were eating the king's food. And after 10 days, it says that they looked better and it says they even looked fatter. Which ultimately... This was the official's primary concern. They didn't care like Israel did what kind of food it was. They wanted those who served the king, who stood before the king to be good looking and healthy looking. They wanted those men to be strong and competent in their appearance. And Daniel and his friends did ultimately after 10 days of just vegetables. And so the conclusion is that God pulled through. Let's be clear, the story is about God, not meat versus veggies. God pulled through. 
honored Daniel and his friends' convictions and commitment to cleanliness and obedience, and in doing so, he allowed them to remain in the re-education program and serve the enemy king of Babylon. Isn't that interesting? But here is God proving himself to be very near to Daniel in order not to save him from Babylon, but to sustain him in Babylon. God acted in a way that didn't get him killed or removed from this program that they had been stolen into. Even though I walk through the valley of death's shadows, I will feel no evil, no evil education, no evil name, no evil that surrounds me and will continue to surround me. It says, for you are with me. So the last question is then, what does this ultimately culminate in? It culminates in this recognition that we can recognize as well, that God is still on his throne. I'm just going to read the last few verses, starting in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So how do we stand firm like this? How do we stand like Daniel did? They remembered, Daniel and his friends, that despite where they were and what surrounded them, what was being forced upon them, that God was still ultimately on his throne. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the affairs of his people, however bleak they look. God knows. God cares. God is able. God reigns. Three times, actually, in this opening chapter, this whole chapter, we read of what God gives. I just want to highlight a few of these things. Starting in verse 2, it says that God gives the king of Judah over to Babylon, which means that God is not scrambling trying to keep up with the world's schemes. God is actually in control, and in this case, God has allowed Israel to be captured because of their own chronic rebellion against God. Then in verse 9, it says that God gave Daniel favor and compassion with the chief official. And in verse 17, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. God is in control. But we see a full spectrum of the things that God is in control of right here. God is in control of geopolitical events, of empires and kings and of wars and invasions. And God is in control of the personal interactions of people, their positions and their influences. God, Scripture says, is responsible for Israel's exile. That doesn't mean that it, that it wasn't their own rebellion that brought it on, nor that God is the author of Babylon's evil motives and war tactics and things like that. But God knows and God uses all that occurs, even the evil actions of Babylon, to accomplish his purposes. When we say that God is in control, we don't mean that he's just standing there like not letting things get out of control. We mean that God actually has a plan that God is working and God is doing something. Jeremiah 29, 11, maybe you already know this verse, says, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, before you go and get that tattooed on your forearm or something like that, let's back up and read Jeremiah 29, verse four, a few verses earlier. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Even exile, even living like an alien, being uncomfortably other, 
in the world around you is God's doing. God has a hand in these things. He says, verse five, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So he says, live in the world, live in Babylon, cooperate without confrontation or without compromise. Love that place enough to pray for and seek the welfare of that place. And then verse eight, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie and they are prophesying to you in my name and I didn't send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. So the book of Daniel is about this passage in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was probably writing around the same time as Daniel. And it's likely, or at least it's possible that Daniel would have been familiar with Jeremiah's prophecies, including this one, that God has a plan. And and maybe that's what he's leaning on. He's leaning on what he knows to be true and had, had been declared over God's people before. But in this case, one of those purposes, one of those pieces of God's plan was to punish Israel with exile. But there's more to that. There's more to that plan as well. God's desire, we've said this over and over, God's desire is to be known. He's a God who's revealed himself because he wants to be experienced and he wants to be known. And he wants to be glorified throughout all creation. And we actually see the beginning of that witness coming together in Daniel with the quality of Daniel and his friends wisdom and counsel before the king. That their advice and their service to the king was 10 times better than anyone else's. You can already see hints. God is putting them in a position of very significant influence. And we're going to see in the chapters to come that several times, several times, these enemy kings, because there's going to be a few of them, will declare God's greatness and actually call the people of Babylon to worship him. So what is God doing? God has a plan to be glorified in and through his own people and in and through Babylon, who he allows to see victories now and then, right? But God is ultimately still on his throne and God reigns. In fact, in chapter seven, um, which will be at the end of our series, um, we're not, so this series, we're just gonna look at the first six chapters. I don't know if you've read Daniel before. It gets really weird in the middle. And it goes into all the apocalyptic literature and things like that. And we're not, we're not necessarily going to go into that yet. <clears throat> I'm just, admit, I'm not prepared for that. I don't, I'm not sure what to do with all those things. But I want to just highlight what, where it starts. Because chapter 7 is a really interesting start to those visions on the heels of these stories. Okay? Um, so we're, we're not going to, we're not going to um, dive into all of it. But I just want you to see that in that first vision in chapter 7, it sort of describes something of the situation that we we'll see here in the first six chapters. Surrounded and confused by strange beastly enemies is essentially my summary of the first part of the vision. But then in the middle of it is a description of God. It says the ancient of days, the eternal one who is seated on his throne. That's where the comfort lies. That despite the chaos, despite the beastly evil empires that reign and rule all around us, God is still 
on his throne. And the ensuing visions, while they get a little more interesting and confusing, they're actually never meant to depart, I think, from this reality that God is enthroned forever and that we can trust him, that he reigns and that he wins and that he will always reign and he will always win. So let me conclude, let me conclude with this. As Daniel stands before the ruler of a world that is not his home, taking on its language and its culture and its name. He's offered honor from Babylon in exchange for compliance and consumption of Babylon's food. He was willing to become a Babylonian and live in a world bent on denying and rejecting his God, but he would not defile himself. And because he wouldn't, God honored him and gave him enough influence, at least, to begin to see the goodness of God declared throughout Babylon. Isn't that cool? In the desert, Jesus stood before the ruler of a world that was not his home, as Satan tempted him. He'd taken on this world's language and culture. And though he was God himself, he took on the name of man. Satan tempted him with honor. And even the worship of the world in exchange for compliance and consumption of Satan's bread that he offered him. Jesus was willing to become like us, to become a man, to live in a world bent on denying and rejecting his father, but he would not defile himself. He said, man shall not live on bread alone. And because he wouldn't, because he wouldn't defile himself, because he was committed to holiness in the presence of God in this Babylon, God would exalt him and give him dominion and authority and influence so that ultimately the goodness of God would be declared throughout the whole world. So the emphasis of this story is not Daniel as much as it is God. We are called first to believe in Daniel's God, to love him and trust that he remains on his eternal throne, sovereign over all the affairs of men. And that trust will show up in the way that we live in the world by learning from Daniel, by being brave for the same reasons that Daniel could be brave, because God still reigns. And maybe more importantly, the one thing that that Daniel didn't have, he didn't have the life of Christ, who is, as we said, I think we referred to this a couple weeks ago, who is a better Daniel, okay? Christ who lived as an alien for us and became like us and stood his ground and lived holy and was crucified for it so that we could be free from the sin that enslaves us. And instead, so that we could receive his life and let the courage and holiness of Christ dwell in us and live out of us. That's our only hope. If you want to live like Daniel, don't try to be like Daniel, live like Christ. This 21st century Babylon we have here is not our home. So know the lines that have been drawn for us. Trust that God is still on his throne. We will need courage to live in this world with this kind of faith. And Daniel is a good example But if you're in Christ and his life is in you, then you are arguably better equipped than even Daniel was to stand boldly and gently in the world that needs to know how great God is. Amen.